This is Mental, the podcast to destigmatize mental health. I'm Bexley Khan. I'm Bobby Temps. Each Thursday, we delve into a factual condition that influences the mind and how to better manage it. With special guests, listener emails, and stats you can trust, here we go. Hey, Bobby. Hi. How are you today? I'm good. I'm excited to get into our first interview. And this week, we are talking about addiction. Whoop, whoop. So first of all, do you want to talk us through some stats? Yeah, of course. Uh, I think addictions are pretty confusing topic at times and there's a lot of misconceptions that exist around it I think specifically in what addiction actually is mm-hmm. so substance misuse is a form of addiction which is what our guest will be talking about today and that's taking a drug or alcohol in a way which leads to harm but there's also a lot of other forms of addiction and overlapping problems that occur can take the form of gambling addiction substance misuse, addiction to shopping, addiction to working, the internet, gaming. Mm, I have that one. Addiction to working. (laughs) Yeah, I think you do. (laughs) Um, But it's actually a problem that doesn't get talked about enough. And hopefully today's episode will get to the core of that a little bit and help to start a conversation. For sure. Uh, So before we get into introducing our guest... We've got a new segment for the show where each week we're going to recommend a book to you. So this is in partnership with Audible. They are a really great audiobook service where you can access over 200,000 titles and it's part of a membership. So I have this membership myself. I really love audiobooks, partly with my dyslexia. It's just a really passive way for me to learn and to... I think passive is the word. Uh, Sorry, passive is the wrong word. I mean, more passive than physically reading for me. Anyway, the point is, um, it's a good service where you can get a subscription and you get really heavily discounted books. I generally buy the really fat physical equivalent books that are like 13, 14 pounds. And I'm only getting them for the monthly fee. So this week, I wanted to recommend a book, which is Sane New World by Ruby Wax. This is Ruby Wax, if you don't know, is a comedian, and she became a kind of poster child for mental illness um, after coming out about it during a comic relief campaign. And since then, she's been learning as much as she can about it, to the extent where she went to do a degree in Oxford into... Uh, neuroscience, science of the brain. So this book is a lot about that kind of journey for her, about her opening up about it. It's quite intellectual as well, having gone to Oxford. It really breaks down what exactly is happening in the mind with mental illness, up to the point we know, because it's still an ongoing discovery process. She has since published another book about mental illness. I have not read yet read it, but this is the first one. So maybe listen to this first. And you can actually go and listen to it for free on Audible. You just go to bit.ly slash mental books, all as one word. We'll have the link for that in the description. You get your first book for free and you can cancel your subscription anytime, including before it starts. So you could get her free book, and then if you don't enjoy audiobooks, say no more about it, you get to keep that one. Okay, 
So that's that. So each week we'll recommend a new book for you next time it is Bexley's turn. Oh, I need to get reading. <laughs> or listening. Listening, definitely, yeah, audible all the way. So did you have some more stats? I do, I do indeed. So NHS have recorded information in 2015-16 and they found there were 8,621 hospital admissions with the primary diagnosis of a drug-related mental health or behaviour disorder, which is not a huge number of people, but it's still a considerable number to get to the point where you need hospital admission. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in 2015, there were 2,500 registered deaths related to drug misuse. So I feel like it's this silent problem in our country that nobody actually confronts until it's directly in front of them. So I think it's one of those things where the stigma means it can be very pushed away from people. So it's something where we can think in terms of addiction, oh, that doesn't happen to people I know. And that's part of the stigma around it. But actually there's there's plenty of normalised forms of addiction, like with alcohol. For our generation, I feel like binge drinking is quite normalised. And my concern is that we're going to reach a point where we all get too old to binge drink, and there'll be some people that will just stop and that will be fine, but there'll be plenty of people that at that point realise they have a problem because they no longer have a group of friends of the same age they can go out and do that with, whether it's that people then have more responsibilities or whether they get to kids' age or whatever that is. Um, so the point we want to make really about addiction is it's it's not so far off. It's not so alien. And what I love talking about with our guest is just so much of it is relatable across the board, not mm-hmm. just for addiction, but we talked a lot about identity we talked a bit about gender and how that plays into mental health as well Mm -hmm. and also how substance misuse and mental health issues are so interconnected and we'll get into this loads with our guest in a second but there's a lot of research by the Royal College of Psychiatrists that looks into how misuse may increase symptoms or symptoms will lead someone to abuse substances Mm-hmm. And it com- it becomes a way of coping or it becomes a way of masking. For sure. Yeah, and I found a really interesting comparison about whether it mental- it's a mental illness or a physical disease. Is, that, is it a software problem or a hardware problem? Oh, I like that. Which I thought was really interesting. Like, our software is how we're wired, but our hardware is our chemistry and our bodies and biology. Yeah, well, that's the thing. Like, you even then hesitated on defining how we separate the two. Mm. And I think that's so important because we'll talk about a lot in the podcast how mental health is just as important as physical health. And actually, those lines are a lot more blurred than people tend to talk about. It all feeds in. And the more one gets bad, the more it's hard for the other to stay well as well. Mm. So our social media account to recommend this week is the wonderful Rupi Kaur. I went to see her with my sister last week in Leeds. She was incredible. She is a poet who is of Indian descent and she's Canadian. And she has two books, Milk and Honey and The Sun and Her Flowers. And they're just the most beautiful healing books I've ever read. And her Instagram is incredible. So go ahead and check her out. And I wanted to read a poem because I was so inspired by her last week 
and I used, I used to send my sister her pose when we were both feeling down. It was like our little connection when I was not feeling too good. So here we go. What is stronger than the human heart, which shatters over and over and still lives? Lovely. <laughs> so that is Rupi Kaur. Rupi Kaur. Rupi Kaur. And she's our recommended social media account of the week. So our guest, it's Charles Edison. He is a rapper and musician living in London. He released an EP last year, and that is on the subject of addiction and also takes in certain themes about unhealthy relationships and coping with anxiety. And so, yeah, it's a really great conversation. He's really insightful. We could really just talk for hours with him. He has great shoe game. I'm a big fan. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, yeah, let's get into it. Interview with Charles Edison. So we're very excited to have our first ever guest on the podcast, Charles Edison, who is a South London rapper. Yes. And we are very excited to hear about your story. Thank you very much. Do you want Thanks to jump in? Yeah. Um, yeah, my name's Charles Edison. I'm a rapper and producer from uh, originally from Essex actually uh, grew up in a really small uh, town called Canvey Island uh, yes it is really an island uh, that's wow. always the first question I get asked it's not like you don't need a boat to get to it you can there's a there's a very small road uh, I'm picturing like that you can cross. a little massive land I'm picturing yeah. a causeway I'm thinking <laughs> very no, it's just you on this island no so um, it's basically separated via like a part of the Thames estuary so it's just like marshland basically it's very it's grim it's not alright so you came from the marshes (laughs) yeah from the bogs um and then moved to South London um almost two years ago now um which was kind of a long time coming I think but I didn't want to do it until I didn't want to do it for the sake of it so I didn't want to house share and I didn't want to live somewhere I didn't want to because I couldn't afford anywhere else. So I'm glad I waited. Um, I live with my girlfriend, Lizzie, who's... uh, We've been together just over two years, actually. Um, So she was with me through everything. Um, And she's really brilliant. Um, Okay, so the everything you're referring to, when did that start? Um, It started... And I I always think it's good for me to preempt this by sort of saying that... I came from a good home. Uh, we wasn't poor. I wasn't abused in any way as mm-hmm. a child. wasn't a broken home. I was raised by two parents. Um, so it's not always people from, you know, addiction isn't specific to a certain type of person in terms of lifestyle or or upbringing or circumstances. It it, it can affect anyone. From and any no background. addiction that came through from your parents? Or no, anything? no history of it in my family as far as I know. Um, I mean, my granddad drinks, um, but, you know, just general granddad levels of drinking. So, uh, <laughs> so that's fine. I didn't even drink that much, really, when, when I got to the age of doing that sort of thing. Um, and at school, I, I was never, you know, when you got to the age of going down the park and getting people to buy a drink for you, I could never really be bothered with that. Um, my parents were quite um, liberal in their approach to alcohol and stuff in that I think they didn't want to kind of be like, oh, you can't ever have a drink because they saw it that 
as soon as we got the opportunity, we would we would go for it because we were told you can't do that sort of thing. So um, we were always allowed from the age of sort of twelve. We was allowed like a glass of wine with dinner. Um, so if I was out with my friends in the park, it's like, well, why would I stand here in the cold? I could mm-hmm. just go home and do the same thing. And at the time, I thought that was being really grown up. But once when I went to rehab and was sort of looking back on on stuff, that was a bit of a red flag for me because I was like. The, the whole idea should have been to have been in the park with my friends, but I was thinking more of, like, why drink there when I can drink there? I was thinking more about the alcohol side of it. Um, but hold on. In terms of, like, where your parents were coming from, I think it makes a lot of sense. Oh, I definitely think it's the right approach, definitely. Yeah. And, that, um, you know, that way you're drinking at home. Yeah. But I can see how it could potentially have shifted your focus. Yeah, how I sort of twisted twisted it around and used it as like justification for for not socializing with people was it wasn't a big red flag but it was kind of I saw it in a different light once once I'd kind of done some some work on myself in rehab Mm -hmm. um but it basically didn't I didn't start with drugs until um I, I started working in media and I was with I was in another relationship at the time that we'd been together for about five years and I was, I guess, probably still quite naive. I just thought that was it. Like, we're probably going to end up together. I can relate to that heavily. <laughs> you settle and you're yeah. this is fantastic. And I think <laughs> that's part of probably what, what um, led to it not working because you get complacent when you feel like that's it and you just kind of settle in. Mm-hmm. Um, and so she broke up with me. Um, it wasn't, wasn't kind of in a good place. I think that's probably my first experience with depression before I kind of knew that's what it was mm-hmm. um, and then I remember when we broke up she said to me oh uh, we should be out, be out doing things that people our age are doing and um, that kind of stuck in, in my head because I'd never been the type to go out and get really drunk and have one night stands and do all that kind of stuff so because all the people around me were doing that it was like well this is what I should be doing and um, it was one night back at someone's flat, someone passed me a line of coke and I thought, yeah, all right, I'll do that. Um, and it just escalated gradually, so it was like a once-every-week thing on a Friday um, night. May I check, that was after the breakup? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of the catalyst, and that's um, that's how the EP came about. It was that, that first track is that point, is that breakup. I see, yeah. Um, so, and with that relationship then... You've said, um, you mentioned that she said something about wanting to do what other people were doing. Yeah. What, what age were you at that point? Um, so I would have been 20, about 22, I guess, 23. Okay, and so was it that she felt she was missing out on some kind of social life with you, or did she have concerns about what you got up to at home? No, I think, I think that it was concerns with missing out on... Uh, a, a bit of a social life because we didn't really I didn't like her friends um, mm-hmm. and it's not that she didn't like my friends but we didn't really spend time as a group like my friends and her so um, I think she felt like it was just me and her all the time and all we kind of tended to do was just stay in didn't really do much so this is my relationship I think <laughs> this is exactly <laughs> what happened when I was 21 yeah it's a real trap, and I think, in my experience, I see it more with blokes. 
um, where they can get in a relationship and suddenly they have all this support and so much of, I think, going out for any gender can be framed growing up around, you know, getting with people Mm. or hooking up or whatever it is. Um, So that then if you settle into the relationship, then... If that's why you were going out originally, yeah, then exactly why you that. Continue exactly going that. Out? Yeah, that was my view of like, why would I? I've got no interest going to a club because the only reason I would go to a club is to pick up women, mm-hmm. and I, I'm not going to do that. So what's the point? It's like a very limited way of looking at it, but mm. I can see how men have that kind of outlook. Yeah, you phrased it really interesting in an interview when I was internet stalking you before this. Right. How your depression mutated into addiction. Yeah, I, that sort of I can't really see where one started and the other picked up because mm. I think they, and they do really in how addiction works, they kind of feed into each other. The, the whole cycle is like, um, addiction basically is like you need to change the way you feel because you can't process and deal with emotions like a normal person. So... You feel an emotion and then you use drugs to escape that. But then from using the drugs, you feel guilt and shame and other emotions that you then escape by using drugs again. And that's how it mm. it goes round and round. And it's those points in between where the depression comes in mm. and obviously you don't want to feel like that. So That vicious cycle. Exactly that, yeah. 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 Mm. And I think it's phrased in medical terms the dual diagnosis of yeah. having a mental health condition and an addiction. Yeah. And I was really interested in your thoughts on whether addiction is a mental health. Absolutely, condition. I think it is. Yeah, I think yeah. it should be viewed as a mental health mm. uh, condition, definitely. Um, because the ability to process emotions and feelings, surely that is part of you know, your mental well being. Sure. And if that's upset or that's you, you don't know how to do that, mm. then to me that's no different than say someone with autism who doesn't, who, who can't, uh, you know, process kind of social things in the right way. So mm. they're on a, a similar line to me. And then drugs become your tool. Yeah. Mm. So it got to a point with you. Yeah, where it, it wasn't. It, manageable anymore and you yeah it it just got worse and worse um I found out that someone I went to school with knew someone that sold it um and living in such a small place it was you know I could phone them and within 10 minutes they're there literally wherever I am they would come meet me so it it was really easy to get it um Mm -hmm. and it it went from being a Friday night to a Friday and sometimes Wednesday night and then it just it was every other night um, uh, and yeah it just got worse and worse to the point of I came close a couple of times to getting arrested um, not directly for drugs but one time I was parked down the road uh, in my car to pick up uh, and someone had seen me pass the money and take the drugs but they'd phoned the police because they thought I was dealing drugs. Mm-hmm. And um, so I came really, really close to getting arrested. Um, I stopped paying bills, so I was driving my car without tax insurance, MOT, uh, and most of the time under the influence. So really and dangerous. this was on the financial side to fund the drug taking? Yeah, so I had um, a credit card which I started leaning on. So I was using all my all my money to buy drugs and then obviously using the credit card to live and then that got to a point where I'd completely maxed that out wasn't paying it so uh, I was getting like payday loans and borrowing money from people left right and centre 
and you end up just juggling like a million lies and telling lies to cover the lies and mm. yeah, yeah it's really really difficult um it's interesting the addiction i've been around was a form of gambling addiction yeah. with someone i was in a relationship with and it's the lying yeah that makes it so hard yeah because i think i was the only person he was being truthful with but there was still layer upon layer mm. of, of lie and it feels so hard to know that's happening with somebody yeah. and how did you find it affected your relationship with everybody around you? Um, yeah, I felt it, it distanced me uh, massively because I think eventually, whether they do it consciously or not, they stop. They stop wanting to to know because the less they kind of ask you, the less they're getting lied to. Um, so you end up. I ended up feeling like they didn't care because they weren't asking me or challenging me mm-hmm. with like well, where have you been or where's your money? And I think they just stopped asking because they didn't want to, you know, ask no questions, tell no lies, that kind of thing. But in, you know, you're kind of, you're not in a great mental state anyway, but you, I was perceiving it as like, well, they obviously don't care, so I might as well keep doing it. Mm-hmm. And it just distances you from, and these were relationships with my parents and, you know, my sister and um, really close family members. So, when you don't feel like you're close to people that close to you, mm. it, it's difficult. Especially when it's feeding into depressive episodes and I can't imagine that element of loneliness mm. must have been so challenging and pulling yourself out of that. Could we talk a little bit about how you started making steps towards... Yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd tried to stay clean sort of just by... St- stopping taking the drugs and, and drinking and stuff um, on my own uh, loads of times. And it never worked. I would always get like a month or two months and then relapse. Um, and then my hand was sort of forced really because it was... I, I, it got to a point with the drugs where I was seeing and hearing stuff all the time. Um, and that's through like just cocaine, which is not uh, hallucinogenic in itself, but you do enough of it over time and you get um, cocaine psychosis. So uh, you get like auditory hallucinations where you can hear like people talking. And um, there was one where I I was was at home and I heard my mum downstairs. Then I kept hearing various members of my family arriving um, and I could hear conversations downstairs about, you know, something had to be done and who was I going to go and live with and all this stuff. So I was like, oh, they're obviously here to do an intervention or something. So in the end, I thought, well, I'm just going to have to go downstairs and face it. And I got downstairs, a completely empty house, there's no one there. Wow. And then uh, I decided that day was to just kill myself. So I took, my mum had a box of tramadol painkillers. So I took the box of them and then uh, just sat down on the sofa, basically, and just waited. And I was lucky, my mum came home. And the next thing I remember after my mum walking in the door was I woke up on the floor with, like, paramedics. Um, So I spent, like, a week in hospital um, because I had a a seizure and my muscles released this stuff into my blood, which is really bad for you. Mm. Um, So they had to wait till that was in normal levels again. Um, And then it was through sort of going back to work and having to give them my uh, hospital discharge form, um, which would have had all the stuff that was in my system, including the Mm. cocaine... So they said to me, um, 
obviously said, you know, is there an issue? Uh, and I just lied through the whole of it. So, no, no, it's not, you know, I was really depressed, but I haven't got a drug problem or anything. So he said, well, we have to send you for drug counselling any, anyway, because that's just, the, we have to do it because it's that, you know, it's on that list. And then I did that for two weeks and continued sort of lying and saying, oh, I'm fine. So then they gave me a date to go back to work. And the night before I was due to go back, I used again. Um, didn't show up for work, didn't call anyone. Um, and made up something about having a panic attack and wasn't ready to come back to work. So they set me another date, another week later. Did the same thing, uh, used the night before. And then I called my manager the next day and was honest, said, yeah, there was a problem. And then they sent me to uh, residential rehab for three months. Uh, Your employers did? Yes. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's really good. They've got a really good policy. Um, their policy is kind of, if you get caught, then it's zero tolerance. But if you, you know, hold your hands up before, mm. they'll support you. Um, and, and just to pause there before we go any further, with um, in terms of where your head was at, you know, you obviously knew you had to go back to work. Yeah. And you had those dates in plenty of time. So where was your head at coming up to that? Um, and then... What sort of pushed you over, as it were, to then using again just before going back? Uh, it, I just used to do this, like, self-destructive thing where... So I did a similar thing when, when I first found out I've got the job I've got now. I knew full well that you had to go for a medical exam and a drug and alcohol test. So it was four days before that, and I used... So I used drug four days before I was going to have to go and have a drug test. Um, I just used to always do it. I used to, like it, it's almost like things things start going well, but then you think this is going too well. I'm not used to this. Mm. So by doing something self destructive, I'm putting myself back in control because everything's shit. But I know I'm the reason why it's gone bad. Do you know? What? It sounds mad, no. but, but it, at the time it kind of. I, I don't think I even realised I was doing it consciously, but. Looking back, I can see that that's what it was because it did, as soon as things started going well, my anxiety would go through the roof because mm -hmm. I would feel like something's just around mm -hmm. the corner, something's got to totally go wrong. And it's yeah. potentially pressure as well, isn't it? Because yeah, because you've, you've got, got to live pressure. up to what mm -hmm. you've, you know, what you've um, attained. And even if it's not something massive that you've, you've attained, even if it's just something like being normal, um, for a while but it's a really interesting perspective there because I've known um, someone that applied for a job um, and they were to have a drugs test as part of that recruitment process and it was sort of on the borderline whether or not they would pass it mm. um, and I wouldn't say they had a drug addiction but they did recreationally use sometimes so they were well within their capability to not yeah, it's Years almost ago. worse if it, you know. Yeah, but they and it was on the borderline of whether or not it might show up, mm. and I think they then self sabotaged in that situation. And it's not until hearing you talk about that that it sort of clicks for me what I was missing, mm. because to me it just made no sense at the time. Yeah, to anyone sort of outside, would be like, "What? What are you doing? Why would you?" All you had to do was just not do that one thing. Mm. Um, it sounds crazy. But. Yeah. And I think that's part of what makes it hardest when I was around gambling addiction. Not It's the same as with 
depression or anxiety, not knowing what it feels like. Why mm. can't you just stop? Yeah. But that's the least helpful thing someone can say. It is, and it's just as frustrating as it is for people around that person to not be able to understand why that person can't stop. The person themselves is, feels that exact same frustration. It's the same. You're like, I'm... I want to stop doing this, but I, li- I do not know how I'm going to do it. There'd be times where you'd, you know, I, I, I would have a, a period of clean time and then it can start with just a, a thought or a smell or something that reminds you of it or a song or anything that, that starts that ball rolling of, I could, I could do that, I could go and pick up now. And then, you, you know five six hours later and you're like how did that happen i don't like i don't know how where that came from Mm -hmm. and then you know that can turn into a five six day binge a week binge and then you know you've got no money left and Mm. yeah so jumping into rehab yeah how did you find oh can i say one thing before we Mm -hmm. get into that just in terms of um what you said there about binging, I think there's some good parallels we can draw in what you said for not having experience of that. Mm. And something I've actually done before to try and understand addiction better was give up things that I'm used to. Mm. So um, I've given up sugar for a bit. And that's such a normal part of everyone's day-to-day life that it's Mm. actually really hard work to get around it and I didn't realise um, how used to it I was. I'm not saying I necessarily had an addiction, but you can have sugar addictions. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, companies like Coca-Cola rely on the addictive qualities of sugar mm. to some extent. Um, so with that, I found it really interesting like how much it kind of affected my mood and how much harder it was than I thought it would be because mm. I was just it was just something I ate. It wasn't anything I thought was really as much of a part of my routine as it was. And what you've said there about binging is what reminded me of that, is that people can try and, like, give up foods, and it's the same thing, that Mm. you then, you break the seal, and you can very quickly, once you've stepped across that threshold, well, then why would you stop? Yeah, that was was a big thing for what actually got me to that point where it was, um, where I I would, you know, binge for days on end and do things I would never have done before because when I first started I would set myself these little these little kind of barriers like you know because I'm I'm very well aware of the fact that you know it's, it, I'm doing you know a class A drug here I need to be really careful so I would say to myself right I won't I'm not going to buy it myself I'll only use it if someone else has got it um I won't do it uh, in the week uh, I won't do it at home and that was that was that but then once you break one of those and you start to break, once they're all gone, then you're kind of you're not left with any reasons why not to do it. So and, and gradually those get stripped away um, to a point where when I when I came into rehab, one of the first in the written exercises, one of the first things I had to write was uh, how has using drugs affected your uh, I think morals, beliefs, and principles. And I couldn't answer it because I couldn't remember. So I, I I don't know. I don't know what I don't know what they are because it's been so long since I'd had any kind of respect for anything or. Uh, any kind of respect for myself in saying like I, I won't do this I won't do that I would never do this they, they, there was no such thing as I would never do that so uh, it was a really difficult one to answer and then I think putting those things back in place and actually gaining some principles and morals again um, is one of the things that has helped me stay clean mm. um, but 
it's not an easy time. Um, for me, it was basically about completely pulling your whole sort of personality down um, and looking at the areas that are going to that have and will cause you to use um, because there's all sorts of like negative personality traits that if you when you look back you can see where they've played a part in your using history there's all sorts of exercises you have to do like writing a life history up to that point so and then you sit and read it to your group so you basically read it out loud to like 15 strangers that sounds tough it was <laughs> yeah not into it um <laughs> And there's another bit where they send out questionnaires to friends and family mm. and then the friends and family obviously write back and you don't know when this is going to happen but you'll sit down for like a morning group therapy session and the counsellor will hand you an envelope and go, there you go, and you have to read that out. So I had to read letters from my parents, my girlfriend, my sister out loud to a group of strangers and you can't, obviously if you're going to cry, you're going to cry, you can't control that, so... Yeah, it's difficult, um, but I just went in there with the attitude of I'm going to do whatever they tell me to do, um, and I didn't want to leave any stone unturned or leave anything uh, not talked about. Um, and I think, again, that was part of why I wanted to make Waking Up the EP, because it, mm. it was like a cathartic thing. Because it's not a particularly cheery listen. So did that music... I really want to learn more about I find music so healing. Did that tape come out of your experience in rehab? And... Um, it was weird, it was a mix really, because two of the tracks on there I'd written before going into rehab, which was interestingly Broken Zoo, which is the first one, and Waking Up, which is the one about kind of the combination of when it was at its worst. They're my two favourites. Oh, brilliant. <laughs> Great I stuff. obviously love the painful period. Yeah, yeah. So, um, it was, I just kind of wanted to fill in what led from point A to Z, really. But yeah, it was, uh, what's the word? Therapeutic, I think, mm. to just have something that's, that represents that and go, right, that's, that's done. Mm. Put that aside now. Um, but it was weird in kind of listening to it over 15 minutes and thinking, that's, that's a long time yeah. and it's been squashed right down. And it's immensely vulnerable, putting that into mm. the world. Yeah. Like, all your darkest moments. How Was that scary? Um, it wasn't scary putting it out, but it was... To write certain parts of it, I obviously had to put myself back in that mind state and remember what it was like at that time. Um, there was one track called Nights, which is supposed to be the period of, like, when it was still fun. So... That was hard because I had to put myself in that mind state but also remember it wasn't fun, it won't be fun if you do it again, mm -hmm. don't do it again. Yeah. Um, but no, I don't, it wasn't difficult putting it out because again it was just kind of that's done, put it out and that's it, I can forget it now. So yeah, I didn't, didn't tend to dwell too much on yeah. what sort of response it got. Um, but it got a really good one actually. Um, so Bandcamp, who I released it through, uh, named it as one of their best hip hop albums in June, I think. Amazing. A month after it came out, so yeah, I was pleased with that. I did bring some tapes yeah. as gifts, so you're welcome to Thank you. keep one. I think I actually have my old tape player from when I was 10. Oh, yeah. like the, you know, the little ones you'd carry around oh, with I had a to, microphone. I had to buy one just to test <laughs> that, those, that those worked, so. 
And you've cited Stormzy and Kanye as influences in... Um, yeah, more so Kanye. I don't. I, I think I generally get compared to whoever's kind of in the focus in the Who UK at the yeah. moment, yeah, just yeah. because it's a, a British act. Um, I get Mike Skinner quite a lot as well mm. as a comparison. Mm. Um, but definitely Kanye West, and I think recently artists like him uh, and Drake, to a point, are actually doing quite a lot for mental health in terms of what they're speaking about now and what their content is. Um, you've got like Kanye mentioning drugs like Lexapro and stuff um, and just generally talking more about how they feel about certain stuff mm. I think particularly in a genre like hip hop is quite a big brave sort of bold step yeah. to make so yeah I actually found when I was feeling quite depressed I used to watch Kanye interviews oh it's so good he just picks you right up yeah he like scoops you up and yeah. picks you up but he also has songs about like the darkest moments and He's amazing. Yeah, I, I like him. Don't get me wrong, he is mental. Um, in the best possible way. Definitely. Um, <laughs> and, you know, he gets a lot of criticism for being arrogant and stuff, but I don't know, I think a little bit of arrogance is good for your, for your self-esteem. Um, mm. Yeah, I think he's got a right to be arrogant sometimes. Well. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. There was, um, there was a quote as well from him that was really, really nice. He said in an interview... Um, he said, oh, I, I don't care if you like me, I care if you like yourself. Aww, oh, Kanye. <laughs> That's, so nice. yeah. That's our quote for the week. Kanye cares, <laughs> hashtag. Okay, awesome. I'm staying quiet on uh, opinions about Kanye. I think that's two similar. against one. You um, don't stand oh, a chance. There's always someone in the room who doesn't <laughs> like him, so that's fine. Okay, so one thing I wanted to dig into a little bit was with the music itself. Um, mm-hmm. We've been listening to it a lot. You know, I really hope you're getting those uh, streaming royalties because yeah. <laughs> you'll get that good, good money off our yes. repeat plays. Um, so. Just, I picked out a few lyrics because I think part of what I love about the music is you can really tell not only that it's true, but you can also feel the, how can I put this? Um, (laughs) You can feel the sort of disjointed nature of the relationship that inspired a lot of this in the writing you know you've clearly like left that in and chosen not to edit it or sugarcoat it Mm -hmm. um and so there's one particular line i really like um where you've put i gave you my world i designed our lives ahead of you yeah that was (laughs) Uh, it's really unfortunate you picked that line because I didn't write that. Uh, <laughs> oh. So that's that's the uh, that's the chorus on Broken Two, which is not sung by me. That's uh, a guy called James Russell, um, and he wrote the chorus. So. It's a beautiful oh. line. I, now I could have lied there and made something up. Well, I appreciate the truth on that show. Um, but it was spot on for it, it's the you know I left it in there. Didn't ask him to rewrite it because it was spot on for for the way that relationship worked really from my point of view like I said I just assumed that we were set and that was it um and that you know we would get married and move out and do all these other you know the general progressive stuff together um and when it ended I was it was completely out of the blue or so I thought and I think at the time maybe if I hadn't been so comfortable and just assumed that things were going to go well I might have seen a few more signs Mm. Um, Mm. yeah 
I felt the same way when I was dating. So were someone. you in the same position as me or the, the girl? I broke up with <laughs> you were, him. You were the guy in the relationship. Yeah, <laughs> I was And I was like, we're going to move in together after uni and it's going to be great and we're going to be together forever. Mm-hmm. But he was the one with the addiction and the distance and he wasn't planning any of that. No. And it's that moment when you're both acknowledging that it's over mm. and it's these sort of crumbling ideas of your future yeah. and they just disappear, which is heartbreaking. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Because when you've not entertained the possibility that it could be any different mm. and suddenly you've got to do that in a split second, it's, yeah, it's difficult. Mm. Yeah, and I think it was on both sides with you guys because you needed a lot of support that you weren't getting as well. Yeah, yeah. When depression and codependency get blended into oh, codependency the, the is a fun terrible, mix. Terrible one, yeah. yeah. Um, see, that there is actually, in the same way that there's Alcoholic Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous, there's actually uh, meetings called CODA as well, which is codependence. My therapist has been telling me about that for a year. <laughs> I won't go. How, are you doing support groups at the moment? Um, I don't do them as much as probably some people do. When I first left rehab, did... Um, I did probably once a week as much mm. as work would allow um, but I, I haven't been to one for a long time um, I'm not averse to them and there's no reason really for me not going I tend to just get to a point and then I, I know I, I need to go to a meeting really mm. and it's not through any kind of feeling like I'm going to use it's just I, I feel a little bit disconnected from from that sort of community and um when one of the things of being in rehab was, like I said, those those negative uh, personality traits, you leave there being like super aware of what they are. So you can actually stop yourself doing certain things that you know are damaging to your mental health. Um, so like I used to do a thing where, because I've never been, I've never felt like particularly masculine because I'm quite short and slight. So I've never felt in a group of men, I don't feel confident. So I would use jokes and humour and, and like self-deprecating humour to assert myself in a way that I couldn't do physically. But then what that does, because you're being self-deprecating, is everyone thinks it's okay, you know, oh, he doesn't mind people taking the piss out of him. So that all gets directed at you. And then mm. in the long run, that's damaging because it just enforces your negative view of yourself or your low self-esteem. That actually reminds me of a quote um, by Lisa Nichols, who I mentioned only last episode, um, that she says, you've got to be the example to the world on how to treat you. Yeah, exactly that, yeah. That's really powerful. I've never thought about it like that. How you talk about how you put your own image out there, that gets reflected back to you. Yeah. Well, because yeah. if if you aren't displaying your way yourself in a way that um, demands respect then you can't expect it. No. Mm. Um, People are, you know, a lot more reflective and a lot more subliminally influenced um, than I think we realise. We've got another line here as well, and that is, most guys would have run for cover when you said the L word, I said it back because I love you. Aww. Yes. So we did that whole thing quite early on in the relationship. We haven't been going out that long. Um, and I mean, we started going out when I was like 15, so that was still like, ah, oh, it's a big thing to say that to someone. Um, and I remember she said it really early on in the uh, in the relationship. So what I'm saying there is like, most guys, if you if someone said that to them that early in a relationship, they would have run run a mile. 
but I said it back because I did, you know, because I meant it, because I did love you. Yeah, and I think a lot of that is put on guys that we're not expected to be the feeling gender, that we're meant to keep a lot of things bottled up. And I think that's really to our detriment, mm. um, particularly when it comes to relationships. Guys can save all this stuff up and then just put it on a significant other and expect them to hold all of that. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting what you said about how you feel around other guys because to me, it's one of the few areas I am binary. With me, gender is just gender. So you, if you're male, you're male. Yeah. I'm not going to be here and judge someone based on, you know, the size or their volume or how much they can chug as a defining factor of whether or not they're male. Yeah. But um, it is a real problem. So for, for me, interestingly when i when i met you today you're shorter than i expected you to be but i think that's because i associate like emotions with power Mm. because in your music you really own it and you speak openly and you talk about your relationships and it's very you know it's very human so to me there's real power in that so actually um I, w- I kind of wish more people felt that way, but it's it's interesting to hear how aware you are of that mm. because I think a lot of guys have this sort of like alpha mentality in their head where we often are sizing each other up definitely, and yeah. have this kind of mentality of who's the alpha and who's the beta. Yeah, definitely. And I don't even think that I was doing that in a conscious way of kind of scanning and thinking, you know, I'm the smallest one here or whatever. It was just a, 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 a natural response to being in a group of men was like, obviously I'm not... I, I would I'd never feel like a, a man among them because they would all, all look older and bigger than me. And, you know, so I was like, right, OK, how can I be... How can I set myself apart from these, these guys? Because um, obviously I, I can't do that physically, so... Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, ultimately, it's it's just damaging to to yourself, really. I think maybe any normal person would may be able to 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 make those kind of jokes about themselves and and do that self deprecating humour all the time, and it not be an issue. But part of I, I overthink things a lot and take things really personally sometimes when I shouldn't. So it's kind of funny how I was making it worse for my, myself. <laughs> Yeah. I don't think that's true though because you are the only version of yourself so if you if that's how you're behaving I don't think there is you know a good way for that like we've talked a bit about in the last episode um about like negative habits mm. and a lot of those um that relate to depression people can relate to far beyond just those mm. that have depression so it's one of those things that if you're not um respecting yourself i don't see there being a positive way yeah yeah that can go really yeah um, i think yeah i think maybe with, with anyone over time um it's gonna it's gonna basically wear you down but i think with someone who's an addict or got mental health issues it's exacerbated it's even worse of an effect mm. because you take things so personally and even when you're the one saying the negative things about yourself, you tend yeah. to... It just reinforces the fact that you believe it's true. Mm. And then you end up saying it more because you believe it's true. And it's, again, another one of those cycles. Yeah, 
I've been reflecting, I've been quiet for ages. <laughs> I've been reflecting <laughs> on what you were saying about size and I'm quite a big girl, that sounds mean. I'm tall. Tall, and there's yeah. a lot Lofty. of me. <laughs> Lofty, My grandma called me broad last week and I was broad. like, thanks. Ooh. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure she didn't mean it like that, but, but yeah. Uh, English isn't her first language. Oh, but, I always felt like I took up too much space already. Mm. Like as a woman, you want to be smaller. As a man, you want to be bigger. And I felt like if I was talking about my emotions, I'd be filling even more space. And if I was loud, mm, okay, so I kind that's of interesting. developed an element of like my anxiety where it's like, you've got to be quiet yeah. and not take up space and not draw attention to yourself. So it's really interesting hearing about it in the reverse yeah. from a masculine perspective and how much it does influence my mental health. Cause yeah. I just was so conscious of being big, which is, yeah. doesn't make sense. But, <laughs> but no, it, no, it does. It does what yeah. you say about how you adapted yeah. other areas of your personality to, to compen compensate for mm. what you saw as a flaw. So mm. that's really interesting, yeah. Well, you know, with the modelling I do, because I train some of the new agency models, um, a lot of them you can spot a mile off whether it's guys or girls, if they're the tallest one mm -hmm. in their group. Because often they are the sort of measurements that the modelling industry requires. You have to have that sort of stature. And you, they, you can see it in their posture that they're mm -hmm. used to being the tallest one in a group and then making themselves smaller. Hmm. And you have to then train that back out of them again. Um, but I think it's, it's particularly prevalent for women. There's this thing of that you're expected to shrink yourself and make yourself more passive so that you can accommodate the mm. space and the will of yeah. men. I need to stop doing that. <laughs> Definitely. That's your, that's your small it's act of resistance <laughs> for this week. Well, you did, you did start that whole bit by saying that you'd been quiet for a while. So yeah. that's a good did start. Oh you acknowledged God. it. We've got to the core already. <laughs> <laughs> so um, just... To finish up on what we discussed about masculinity, mm. in terms of where you've reached in your life now, how do you feel talking about um, mental health to an addiction to other men? And does that differ to how you talk to women about it? No, I, no, not at all. Um, I've done kind of shares of my experience um, to groups of people that are waiting to go into treatment through my employer mm -hmm. so when I was going for the counselling you, you do kind of two or three weeks where they kind of assess where they would send you and for how long um, and when I came back out of rehab they wanted me to come up and, and talk to a group of these people about that so um, no I'm, I'm used to kind of talking to other people about it and my I'm always really open with it because my view is is someone might be scared or they might not know if they've got a problem or I just think I, there's more to gain from talking to someone about it than there is, you know, from not talking not talking about it. Um, and you can usually sort of feel out if someone's receptive to it or if, you know, they want to talk about it or they want to ask questions. Because it might not even be someone that's going through it themselves, but it could be someone who's just got a family member um, like I was at a training thing for work and part of our training was about the drugs and alcohol policy that um, we kind of have to enforce uh, and all the different procedures around it um, and also like spotting someone who might be suicidal. Mm. Uh, I work for London Underground so that's 
it sounds weird otherwise if I'm <laughs> saying about spotting suicidal people at work but like people on the on the platforms um, if they look unwell mm. um, so I was kind of talking a bit about uh, being suicidal and stuff like that and got into a conversation about drugs and addiction and um, this woman who was in my training group with me uh, spoke to me afterwards oh, I'm so glad you said something I'm really worried about my son and you know he's struggling with this and this and you know, I was able to explain explain a little bit to her what he was going through and what, uh, what the, you know, what she can do to to help. Or, you know, I just gave her my number and said, if you want to talk, you can give me a ring. Um, and it's nice to be able to do that and to feel comfortable enough to be able to do that. Um, because yeah. yeah, any way I can sort of help yeah. other people really. That's such a wonderful thing I found coming out of horrible times as you have so much capability of helping yeah. and that's such a powerful thing to harness yeah and it always feels amazing when you can connect to just one person yeah and for them to say that's helped me yeah it's just amazing and with something like addiction it's the, it, it's still so um misunderstood um and i think the more people can talk about it and have certain things explained and um just try and just understand it a little bit more. Uh, the more that we can do that, um, the better. Grand. Okay, so I think we'll wrap up there. Then. Yeah, thank you so much. You're welcome. But thank you very much for that. Before we finish, uh, yeah. just talk us through the EP once more so everyone knows where to get it. So the uh, EP Waking Up is available on charlesedison.bandcamp.com as a cassette tape, um, or you can stream it for free. Uh, through Apple Music, Spotify and Tidal. Awesome, and you have one bonus track? Yes, on the EP, that's if you order it as a cassette, the bonus track is on there called I Can't Hear Them which was a single before the EP. Everybody buy the tape, and you you can look really cool with your friends. (laughs) Yeah. Well, we, I, I think yeah. we were saying off air how um, the scary thing is now, like this, these cassette tapes, like there'll be kids growing up that will only know those from 13 Reasons Why. That will be the only reason they know what they are. My little cousin said something that was really funny. You know the little save symbol? Yeah. That's, how do yeah. kids know what that they is? They don't know what, they it, is. know what it is. She has no idea. Yeah. <laughs> it's a floppy disk. A what? <laughs> or even on phones when you pick up a call or hang up and it's got the ha- oh, yeah. the handset they might not recognize that probably oh, not that's so crazy i feel I horribly feel so old, old. <laughs> all right and on that old note uh, we will we will finish up there yeah thank, thank you, you so, so much. much thanks again just to play us out here is the wonderful track waking up by our friend of the podcast charles edison Cause we was fucked way before this ever got physical That's not literal, it's just a play on words If you don't understand that you can vanish at the interval Moments of my life when I was getting low or feeling high Regretting those are set in stone and now I can't forget the lines Reading between them on a study of a new existence I'm forced to face this bed I've made and lay awake resisting It went from sex liars videotape To attempted suicides and using just to escape Now I'm sick of being miserable I've given all to live as nothing Through guilty memories to render me as just disgusting My promises peter out before they pop off I swear to God I'm lying to myself that I am not lost But it's plain to see that I'm so jacked Locked in battle fighting back against these panic attacks
routine is killing me So get the chalk ready, I can't keep my thoughts steady The voices in my head ain't saying nothing But they talk plenty I can't do this anymore, I'm fucked Consumed by a monsoon of pure disgust Between the raw uncut and the whiskey It strips me of everything I was People round me say they miss me So I do another one, another one, another Until this bright mind is drained of any colour Just keep racking lines, never mind racking nerves Disassociated paranoia, it's getting worse There's nothing left except guilt and shame And feeling like reality is never gonna feel the same I'm falling down and that's the bottom line Waking up is hard with no alarm I'll never know if I can stop in time Waking up is Thank you for listening, and if you want to suggest topics to cover or any questions, email over mentalpodcast at icloud.com. All emails are anonymous by default. Visit mentalpodcast.co.uk for a list of our recommended resources. And remember, we are in no way a substitute for qualified counselling and other mental health support. Our show is edited and produced by the brilliant Pete Matter with licensed music by NetSky. Links in the description. Speak to you next Thursday, and remember... You are enough. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts.